When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. In one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Rebecca Kaufman, author of the novel Chorus. A constant conflict is inside of me, this this desire to understand things by trying to ascribe language to them as a writer, yet knowing that is absolutely We'll be back with Rebecca Kaufman after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. 
This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Rebecca Kaufman. Her novels include Another Place You've Never Been, which was longlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize, The Gunner, which was a Barnes & Noble Discover pick for 2018, The House on Fripp Island, which earned the Times Best Crime Fiction of June 2020 designation, and her new novel, which is called Chorus. Kaufman earned her MFA in creative writing at NYU and lives in Virginia. Chorus tells the story of the Shaw family, which is composed of seven siblings. All seven siblings have long been obsessed by two life-altering events, their mother's untimely death, which may or may not have been a suicide, and a shocking teenage pregnancy, moments which have followed each of the siblings through their adulthood and into middle age. The book alternates between points of view from each Shaw family member and offers them the chance to relay their version of the events that surround their mother's mysterious death. Chorus is a story of family, loss, and recovery, the complicated relationships forged between brothers and sisters as they move through life together, and the forces that drive them apart and back together. We began the discussion with Rebecca Kaufman sharing how the novel began. The story, of course, I suppose, technically begins years before I actually started the book. Um, so my my third novel sold in 2018, and I promptly started a fourth novel at that time. And toiled away on that fourth novel for several years. And it was, um, it was not good. (laughs) It was not good. And it was not getting better. Um, And then the pandemic hit. And I found myself unable to write at all for several weeks. And then when the desire to write returned, um, that book held no interest for me um, whatsoever anymore. And chorus emerged very, very quickly in those early months of quarantine, by far the fastest that I've ever written a first draft. And it felt like it came out of nowhere. But I think, you know, the, the, the best way that I can think about it now is that those years that I spent on that bad, bad book, um, something inside of me was at work that whole time and readying itself for the page, just not the manuscript that I, that I thought where I thought it was headed. It seems as though circumstances in my life do almost always make their way up and out and onto the page, but it's very rarely a direct, explicit, or linear connection. In the case of Chorus, I was several months into my first pregnancy and a deeply joyful, expectant mother. And this book is is not about a joyful, expectant mother, but it is about the joy of family. I believe, and, you know, just the familiarity and constancy of that nuclear familial bond. 
you know, quarantine and pregnancy both factored into the book, but it all gets churned around and, and mangled and, um, you know, transformed in some way. And, and what comes out rarely resembles my, my actual life circumstances, though they are embedded in there somewhere. Were there certain things that you really wanted to investigate? So this, you know, chorus is about the Shaw family and their seven siblings, and it opens in the 20s and kind of covers a territory up to maybe the mid-60s. And each chapter tells about a different child. Sometimes you have the same child twice in a row, but it's it's kind of piecing together this family from each of their individual experiences. So when we get to the next child, we understand their peripheral world. Like we understand the constellation of life around them, but then we get more internal into that individual. And so I'm wondering both about the style that you chose to write it, but also if what was there a central theme that you wanted to explore overall? For me, it's best if my concept of theme arrives very, very late in the process of writing. Um, as soon as I decide what a book is about, it can very quickly become heavy-handed. But I, I realize now, I think that perhaps what I was essentially writing toward was the idea that each of these characters is meant to have their own fully actualized identity. And then they also have their identity within the context of one another and the family and you know the role that they play in the family whether that's been imposed upon them or not so my my interest is in the difference between those two identities and the many layers of that that difference or that distance um and it's specific to the family dynamic but not exclusive to it of course so I, I think that's what overarchingly arrived. And as far as the the form that the book took, um, I, I love short stories and I like and I love novels. And uh, you know, the the linked short story form sort of allows me to explore the best of both worlds. What I admire and enjoy about short stories is the way that they typically hinge on a single moment um, in which a person's life may perhaps pivot. The character in the story may or may not realize it. The reader typically does. So the idea of a, a very singular moment appeals to me in a short story and also just the economy of language that's typically employed to, to achieve something wonderful in a, in a small space. On the other hand, I love the just the depth of character and interiority that that you can explore in a novel um, that I think is just very, very difficult to achieve without um, having many, many pages to do so. So Chorus allowed me to write about many singular defining moments, but also sit with those characters long enough and over the course of enough pages that that I felt I hope um, I was able to achieve a satisfying amount of depth with this large cast as well. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people to manage, like you're the HR department for this family. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what, I did not set out to write a book from nine different points of view. <laughs> that was not my intention. Every novel that I've written, I've set out with the intention of having 
one protagonist, one voice, one point of view, and they've all strayed from that. And in this case, with Chorus, I decided to just accept that and go a step further and investigate if there was something that I was trying to achieve aesthetically with all of these voices. And there was, you know, it's a story told as a collective. And I understand that the multitude of voices might be irksome or confusing at times to try and remember sibling order and keep the timeline straight. But my hope is that is that a story told in this format that it evokes something really particular because of the way in which it resembles a chorus. You know, many, many voices all telling the same story, some louder than others, some perhaps that resonate with you personally more than others, but again, all, all telling the same story together simultaneously. And I would say that the inciting incident is really that this family, again, that begins in the 20s with seven children, had this elusive, mentally ill, depressed mother who committed suicide. And the their growing up was kind of surrounded a little bit by the mystery of the suicide, of her not leaving a note, of never being able, even when she was alive, to speak ill or frustrated of her because their father was so protective. They grew up on a farm, so they really, they had friends, but they really had each other. So it's really intense, the closeness between them all. And so what made you, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you were pregnant when you were writing this, so it seems like you were starting to imagine the worst scenario, but what interested you about that motherless, elusive, mentally ill mother? Yeah, I mean, it is a story about an absence. Mrs. Shaw is largely absent from her children's lives when she is alive, and and then she dies when when they're very young, and there's also the absence of a concrete explanation for her death. And some of the later stories explore the idea of final words, um, you know, what a person chooses to express with language in their final living moments and how much importance we should place on that as, as survivors. You know, the children, most of them anyway, are completely in the dark about the exact circumstances surrounding their mother's um, final moments and if and were if and what any final words might have been. So, you know, in telling a story about an absence, it also became a story about our attempts to fill that vacancy as we move through life. And do we try and fill fill that gap with um, with one another as siblings? with a loving partner down the road, with children of our own, with alcohol, with some sort of academic pursuit to try and intellectualize uh, you know, trauma from our past. And do any of these attempts to fill the, the gap do so or even come close or even, even touch it? Or um, you know, are, some, are some vacancies so profound and so painful that they just gape wide open for a lifetime. And, you know, this book doesn't attempt to answer that question, but I, I, I did want to look at it from varying perspectives and, um, and the siblings do have wildly different responses coming out of, out of that absence. So for this project, what was interesting to you about this time period 
sort of 20s to the 50s in Virginia on a on a farm. In the same way that I didn't necessarily set out to write a book with nine different points of view, I also didn't put a lot of thought into the fact that it would be a historical novel. Um, it, it was sort of one of those intuitive moments where I was just like, plop, here we are. Um, let's hit the ground running. I was reading a lot of historical fiction at the time that I wrote this, um, which I think did have to do with the pandemic. I just was totally, totally allergic to the news cycle and anything relating to COVID um, or, you know, 2020 in general. And so I was reading a lot of Alice Monroe, Wallace Stegner, um, Winesburg by Sherwood Anderson, and just really falling in love with the pace of life represented in, in some of that work and was definitely absorbing some cultural and, and contextual elements of, of what I was reading at the time. Um, and I do find that I'm, I'm very influenced by what I'm reading. So I think that factored into my desire to write something historical then it just kind of made more and more sense as the story moved forward. The Great Depression factors pretty heavily. And as I did some, some research and some thinking about Mrs. Shaw's mental illness, you know, something that really struck me and, and where I sort of put most of my energy as far as that was concerned is the fact that 100 years ago, a depressed state of mind or a volatile state of mind was not even necessarily widely recognized as an illness at all or something that's beyond the control of the person suffering from it. So I became incredibly curious about how that must have felt to be the child of someone suffering with mental illness, you know, to see your mother clearly in a diminished state, yet she has no injury or affliction that you can name or that anyone can explain to you. Would you be angry? Would you would you pity your your parent? Um, just how that would look. And in the case of this story, it looks very different for each of the children. The other element of early 20th century Virginia that appealed to me was was the the rural setting of the family's home. I live in rural Virginia now, so that that landscape is very easy for me to access the the seasons and the sky and so setting the book sort of in this area that is removed from community or society the interactions between characters are really limited to the nuclear family unit for the first part of their lives and that seemed easiest to achieve if it was set you know 100 years in the past and also somewhat reflective of the quarantine experience, <laughs> which was not something that I set out to write about at all. Um, but these things, you know, work themselves onto the page somehow. One of the things that was really interesting to me that struck me about these characters is that for the most part, when we age, we're pretty much the same people. Like a lot of the characteristics and struggles that these characters had when they were children, just follow them through their lives or resurface. Even if they might leave the problem for the middle of their life, it comes back as they age. And I'm wondering if that was something you consciously thought about as you were forming these characters. I don't think that was a conscious thought throughout. Personally, I I really would like to believe that we're capable of great change over the course of a lifetime. There is a lot more in myself that I would prefer 
to change than <laughs> to remain constant for however many years I have left. As you said, I, I, I'm really not sure the extent to which that's possible. And so I suppose for each character, my quest as I'm ans- answering this question to myself along the way, it, does this work? Does this work? Um, part of that is, is this true for this character? Um, does this, does this, does this ring true? Um, and yeah, I, I guess as you pointed out in more cases than not, um, the characters do find themselves cycling back to the same pitfalls as adults that they, that they display as children as well. One of the things I noticed throughout the story was there was this undercurrent of violence Sometimes it was obvious. Sometimes it was, you know, in your opening scene, there was some some animal um, predator prey violence. There's some fights between people, but it's like there's this undercurrent of this kind of heat happening around them. And I just wanted to ask you about that. Most of my books do contain some sort of natural threat or violence. And I think for me, it's both tonal. This is not a conscious decision that I make when I'm writing such a scene, but I think it does inform a certain reading. So even where, even in a scene in which the humans are, you know, behaving fairly generously and things are fairly pastoral, inserting some little sort of threat in some other realm somehow heightens tension a little bit. And I think it just colors a scene um, and can and can provide some underlying sort of suspense or tension to have um, the threat of violence exist, even if it's not closely related to what's happening between characters. What do you think it adds to what is happening between characters, maybe? A sense of vulnerability. You You said earlier that when you write, you can basically spend a year writing the draft and that you know, words for you, like you want to get them out. And I guess I would say one of the themes of the book has to do with words. You had mentioned earlier, last words, there was um, this this beautiful sentence where one of the women, her husband died in war and the soldiers came to tell her and they were saying there's no word. And she's thinking to herself, well, there, there is a word for everything, but sometimes it just takes time to think about it. And this idea of last words comes up a lot. Like, do you reveal something on your deathbed that might hurt people? Do you say you're sorry on your deathbed? What do you say? And is that truly more important than the whole of your rest of your life that these moments mean something? So I, I was just interested in what you had to say uh, about words and language and maybe their limitations, maybe they're, they're not limited. Maybe they, they don't have limitations like we think. Oh, I think they do. Um, This is probably a, a, odd sentiment to hold as a writer, but I think words are wildly insufficient. <laughs> um, I just happen to love them. I happen to love the traditional, a traditional style of storytelling through language, but it doesn't come close to capturing life. Another element, of course, for me that, that I don't know to what extent this, this actually translates to most readers, but there's, there is a strong spiritual element to me that I guess is expressed 
most explicitly through the through the vantage point of Henry as a child. He's a child for whom he so desperately wants everything to mean something, and he's obsessed with with the idea that he can land on some grand explanation for life and then just kind of understand it and be done with it. And he's so frustrated by the inadequacies of every explanation that he's getting. And this part of him that so, so deeply desires a heightened understanding is something that I really identify with and especially can recall from childhood, the desire for things to make sense. And it's something that I think has has sort of inspired my journey to becoming a writer is the desire for things to make sense. Um, I have this desire to impose sense upon stories. At the same time, I think it's a terrible pitfall as a writer because my actual experience is that life makes very little sense. Um, <laughs> much of it is is chaotic and can be cruel. And so I think in fiction where everything does make sense, that, that, that tends to not be very good fiction because it's not reflective of the way that I think most of us experience life. Um, so there, there is kind of a, a constant conflict inside of me, this, this desire to understand things by trying to ascribe language to them as a writer, yet knowing that is absolutely futile. Do you have anything else you want to share about last words and deathbed confessions and sort of the weight of that? I mean, you have characters who maybe are missing a deathbed confession. You have characters who are commenting on a deathbed confession that just brought them pain and revealed something. And instead of being able to like go on their lives in happy ignorance of that thing, it's like, who did that really help? Did it really mean that much to the dying person to free their soul in some way to, to put that burden on someone else when they have to rearrange how their life looks? Just wondering if you had anything else. Do you have anything else you want to share about last words? I suppose where I sort of landed on this after exploring a number of avenues in the book was that as a survivor, I think one should generally allow themselves to either receive or not receive any final words or final messages as you see fit. You're the one who's carrying on here. And if these words carry a great deal of weight as a burden, I think we should feel the freedom to release them and not hold them tightly in our memories of, of the person that we've lost and and insofar as they inform our own our own continued existence. Or if the final communication that you have with someone brings you a great deal of comfort, then absolutely I, I think hold on to those words as tightly and and as long as you can and and as long as you want. Yeah, it's just so interesting because they're not it's like words are yours. <laughs> in a way until you speak them and that they they hang in the air or they start to belong to the people that you're exchanging them with or giving them to and so there's a lot of responsibility I mean we know what we say matters but it's also like who who owns them once they're out of your mouth when they're directed towards someone else it's just an interesting question yeah and I I think that's something that a lot of 
writers grapple with because once we put the book out there, we can't, you know, correct every reading that we think is mistaken in some way of our work. You know, we can't say, well, no, actually I meant this. Um, or no, I don't think you got that. <laughs> I don't think you read that the way I intended you to. No, absolutely. Once it's out there, it is, those words are entirely up to someone else's interpretation. Another thing that I took away from the book is that just how private our lives are. Like you were saying, one of the things that were in, was interesting to you, especially in rural Virginia on a farm in, in, the, in the 20s, is that how close-knit the family is and how they really only have each other for entertainment and solace and comfort and emotional support and fun. And at the same time, I think one of the things your novel shows us is how deeply alone we are and how private our lives can be even when you live in community? I think my fiction is always concerned with um, the the gap between the internal and external, which is more reflective of our actual existence. And and I honestly don't know, you know, are, are the thoughts that we keep private are, does that mean that they're the most true and the closest to our heart? Or does that just mean that, you know, whether it's ego or cowardice is something negative getting in the way of our expressing them because they're not, they're not necessarily true or, or that worthwhile anyway. Um, I don't know, but I think that that's, you know, one of the, one of the virtues of fiction is that we can explore that distance in a way that can't be done, you know, on film or, or really in any other um, medium. Yeah, it is. You can show so much in a book and that's, Maybe what drew you, I don't know, to these nine characters to, to, it's like, as soon as you get into their internal worlds, it's just universes. Yeah. And then how that sort of manifests in their relationships with one another as well. You know, I think most, most people have had the experience of a relationship changing in a way that they, that they didn't anticipate and that they don't entirely understand, but so much is contained in a human relationship with any amount of depth at all. There's what's happening inside and outside. There's the past, present, future concerns. There are grudges. There are words unspoken. There are words spoken out of turn. There's just any deep, close relationship contains so much. And so, therefore, there are so many different outcomes that a relationship can have. You know, having this many characters and so this many individual relationships really allowed me to kind of explore all of those different avenues and, you know, the many different courses that a, that a relationship can take for better and for worse. I guess another thing that happened to many of the siblings was just disappointment of marriage. I mean, the father never expressed disappointment in marrying this woman who's mentally ill, but we learn that they don't really have much time together before her, her illness really sinks in. And so most of their life together was not healthy for her. And so I'm wondering what you wanted to explore with this disappointment of marriage, which some of it seems to have to do with the time period, too. Yeah, I think in more cases than not in in the context of this book, it's it's words unspoken that simmer and that eventually, you know, drive partners apart. And in the case of, of Bette and Ray, incredibly tragically, you know, again, this is not something that I think I was writing towards, but, but when I consider 
some of those doomed relationships now. I think, you know, it's just a, a lack of communication. It's a, it's a fear of vulnerability to expressing one's, one's true needs and desires that, um, that really gets in the way of, of a fulfilling marriage or relationship. Um, and then on, on the flip side, um, Henry enters into a, um, a, a beautifully happy marriage, um, which I'm sure is not conflict free, but, but none of, none of the stories about him really delve into any sort of conflict in his new family life. And I think, I can't remember exactly what, what the line was, but something like he, up until this point, he hadn't realized that one person could answer your life. And so after his sort of quest to find meaning in life, it, it, it turns out to be incredibly simple. He, he, um, enters a loving marriage and, and raises a child. And, um, this is the answer to, <laughs> to all of the questions that he, he had prior to that. So, yeah, I, I would say probably no, no overarching thought or theme to express where, where that's concerned, because again, any relationship just contains such a multitude of, of factors. And I think with Henry too, where, with, where you were just mentioning, he was the youngest um, the youngest brother, yeah. The youngest, youngest boy. child, yeah. He bared the brunt of a lot of their mother's mental illness. And one of the lines, I don't remember it exactly, it was that he did not want to marry a mystery. And so he was very consciously like making sure that he was going to pick someone from the beginning who didn't have these hidden depths. It was interesting to explore how Mrs. Shaw, the ripples of um, their experience with her as a mother struck people very differently. And, you know, Henry and Bette as the youngest are, are more generous towards her. Perhaps they, they spent less time when she was healthy, so they didn't see the transformation that some of the older children saw. Um, and the older children, some of them seemed to harbor deep resentment and bitterness impacts their relationships as well. I suppose it was it was interesting for me to consider just the broad and long-lasting impacts that that their mother had on their on the partners that they chose. Another theme or takeaway from the book had to do with that lying to yourself, that the words that you tell yourself and that you can only lie to yourself for so long. And and for some people they can lie to themselves forever. For some people, they look, they want to do self-improvement, so they have to look and take an honest look. And for some people, it's revealed to them through maybe a tragedy or something that they just can't ignore anymore. And I wanted to ask you your interest in this idea of how long we can lie to ourselves. Not not forever, <laughs> I think, in most cases. Um, and... Yeah, there are a number of scenarios in this book where a character is forced to come to terms with a lie that they've been telling themselves. And um, in, in, in most, maybe in, in every case in the book, difficult as that is, I think it ends up being incredibly freeing in the long run. I suppose, again, this is another area that fiction can, can so efficiently explore is the reader understands the lie the reader understands that the character understands the lie um so the reader's kind of sitting there waiting for the character to either fully acknowledge it or not and and that creates a really nice 
tension as you wait and wait and wait for this person to do what, as a reader, you believe would be good for their soul, um, but to wait on, on them to arrive at that for themselves. Is there any lessons you learned as a writer for how you modulate that? Avoiding the impulse to overwrite. Um, thinking about Lane's situation in particular, I ended up scrapping probably 70 to 90% of the material that I had written about her processing of what happened to her as a teenager. And I think that was that was the right decision, just pulling back all of the language and letting letting the the lines that I ended up keeping, like really, really honing those to say exactly what I wanted to say. Um, and and then sort of letting the rest disappear and let the reader sort of draw their own conclusions until the moment of truth. And she's a character who gets married at 15 to a neighbor boy and her siblings suspect that, and she's pregnant at the time and she, you know, she's 15, he's 20 suspect that maybe it wasn't a a willing pairing. And she always insists that it is. And so there's a lot of tension between her and the family the whole time because they never quite believe her and some of them do because she's very insistent that it was and so it kind of hangs over the story like what the truth is and then that idea of not really knowing people's motivations comes back in a way to haunt her because her son when he's young a young man joins a commune that's more cult-like and won't come home and so She's really struggling with that, but also has to see that sometimes the choices we make in our lives, no one else can make them for you or change them for you. You have to go on your own journey. Exactly. And I think, I think she takes some solace after having that final interaction with her son, um, which is deeply painful. I think she, she's able to comfort herself with the recognition that she, she experienced that same you know, turning her back on the truth and running from it for years, um, years and years. And so I think the fact that she then was finally able to kind of wrestle with it, look it in the eye, accept it for what it was, gives her some hope that her son will do the same. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? I would love to. Um, So I have just a short passage to read. Um, from the book Folly by Susan Minot. Um, I will confess this is not actually the novel of hers that influenced me most while I was writing Chorus. That was her novel, Monkeys, um, which I seem to have misplaced. (laughs) Um, But this is a wonderful novel as well. And when I flip through to find a passage that sort of captures what I admire most about Susan as a writer, um, I almost immediately landed on one. So I I thought, let's go with this. I really, really admire two things in particular about her writing, how much she can convey with a single line of dialogue, um, either spoken by or about a character, just incredibly economical with her use of dialogue. And then also um, she really knows how to, how to stick a landing, um, the ending to her books, every chapter, practically every passage, um, just gives rise to something in me as a ride as a reader almost every time whether it's that I'm that I'm touched or shocked or provoked in some way um just an incredible sense of how to end something 
in an exciting way. So this is just a quick little exchange that ends a, an early chapter in this book. No, no context necessary. Sometimes, said Aunt Tizzy, with the air of one who knows more of the world than the others present, a girl who is not an idiot can behave like one, given the right situation and the right boy. Why isn't this gossip? Lillian said. Matter of general interest, said Mrs. Elliot. There's no real reason a son cannot be polite to his father, said Mr. Elliot. No reason in the world. Errant genes, said Aunt Tizzy, must be. Yes, said Mrs. Elliot. I've often wondered how you and Edward could have turned out so differently, she smiled. Lillian, however, had heard the explanation from her mother. It was from living with those cousins in Dover and not having them look after her, which made Aunt Tizzy wild. Tizzy Elliot's face hardened. Just one of those mysteries, I guess. Mr. Elliot pushed back his chair with a short movement and placed his folded napkin square to his plate. Life is one grand mystery, he said. Though Lillian had not seen, seen him behave as if it were the least mysterious at all. So that ends the chapter. And I, I just, I love that last line, the idea of a person who behaves as though life is not mysterious at all. It's so that just sends my mind spinning. I just, I want to think about that person. Um, Susan Minot, she's, she's a wonder. I love her work. Can you read something you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Sure. Um, so this is a passage from a story that actually didn't exist in the first draft. <laughs> um, when I submitted chorus to my publisher, um, it, it only explored the story from the eyes of the seven children. And my editor, Jack, very wisely, I think, recommended that I write a couple chapters from the point of view of Jim Shaw, the father. And at the time, it had been quite a while since I had written the rest of the book, and I was worried that these chapters would feel like outliers or like an afterthought or something. And and they ended up being some of the chapters that I'm the most fond of. Um, so I thought I would read um, just a short passage from Escape, which features Jim Shaw's point of view. So let's see, he has found himself sort of unwittingly in the scenario scenario of eavesdropping on his three sons. He was working up in the loft of a barn and um, they came in and started working beneath him and were not aware that he was there. And at first he's sort of amused by the idea um, and sort of tickled by the idea that he's going to get to hear how they interact um, when he's not around. And then that, that takes a shift when their conversation turns toward their parents, toward Jim and his wife, who he's very protective of. When their voices became audible again, Jim realized that the trajectory of their conversation had accelerated even faster than he had imagined, because now Jack was saying spitefully, not like she'll get out of bed anytime soon. Jim knew it could only be their mother that Jack was talking about in that particular tone of voice and with that particular accusation. Whatever was going to be said, they were hurtling toward it. Jim tried to prepare himself. He tried to feel strong about himself and his life. Henry said timidly, maybe she'll get better soon. No, no, Jim thought fiercely. Don't say that. Don't hope. He was certain that any words of support or in defense of her would only amplify the brutality of the reaction from Sam or Jack. But miraculously, the conversation ended right there. Neither Jack nor Sam responded. Jim couldn't believe it. 
Was someone's pail full and they had gone to transfer it to the cooling tank? He stared down. No one had moved. Had Sam and Jack not heard the last thing Henry had said? No, it was not possible that they'd missed it when Jim had heard it so clearly. Were they both just contemplating their retort and the cruel thing was still coming? But another minute passed and nothing more was said. Henry's words were the last ones spoken on the matter. Henry's hope was still lingering in the hot air all around them. When Jack next spoke, it was to ask Sam if he wanted help moving his pail with the sore back and all. Sam said yes. Jim had never heard Jack offer to help Sam, but based on the natural manner of Sam's response, he gathered this was a normal thing. Did the boys only offer to help one another when Jim wasn't around? Or maybe they helped one another all the time? Jim simply failed to notice. He couldn't seem to get straight in his mind who his sons actually were. In any case, if Sam's pail was full, that meant the cow was almost empty and they would all be finished milking soon. All three pails would be dumped in the cooling tank. All three boys would leave the barn to go rinse the pails in their hands and Jim would be able to come down from the loft undetected. He would be spared. But he knew that now that his heart had limits, lines that could not be crossed. And he felt relief and gratitude and pride and love and fear at the people his children were, both when they knew their father was listening and when they didn't, and the people they were becoming and the things they said and the things they didn't. Where do you write? I have a couple different wonderful options at my fingertips, which include um, the office at the university where I'm a writer in residence currently, and also a nice little setup here at home, desk in front of a window, um, upstairs. But that's <laughs> I, I never write in either of those <laughs> places. Um, my preferred mode has always been seated cross-legged on the couch. Um, with the TV on in the background, muted but on, um, which I know is terrible for my eyes to have my laptop in front of me and then the TV on and it's always some sort of trash. Um, but that's just, that's just where I go. <laughs> that's where it happens. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, these days, writing time is such a luxury um, <laughs> that I, I, I never feel the inclination to, to escape it. Um, but I can reminisce happily to a time when, when that was not the case, um, always outdoors, uh, walking, running, hiking, um, is always, and, and usually in solitude is what, what best clears my mind. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a couple writer friends who I exchange work with, not on a formal timeline or workshop schedule or anything like that, but just sort of circulate email drafts, um, somewhat infrequently. And, um, and then I'll often bounce short passages or ideas off both my husband and my sister are, are usually early readers, but not necessarily of, of a draft in its entirety. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection does not phase me <laughs> anymore. Um, <laughs> I think I, I had the advantage of coming into the writing life um, after after getting my degree in classical music at a, at a music conservatory where um, I guess not rejection per se, but public critique and occasionally humiliation are very much a part of the experience. So, you know, in my early twenties, I think I just developed super thick skin um, and which I think you need as a writer, you, you need to be incredibly resilient and persistent and um, just always, always looking forward, um, which is not to say that that you shouldn't take into account the words of, of, a, of a sharp reader who has taken issue with your work, but um, 
yeah, you, you can't can't ruminate on that. And what is your favorite word? Well, I don't know if you're going to accept this as an answer because it's it's not a word um, in the dictionary, <laughs> but it is truly my favorite word. So um, my brother-in-law has two brothers and when they were young, these three boys came up with the, the term first luxuses, which refers to the first wonderful pristine experience of something like the tip of an ice cream cone or the first spoonful of peanut butter. Um, and apparently as, as young men, they would just fight viciously over first luxuses. Um, and so that's become my husband and I don't fight viciously over first luxuses, but it is a, it is a term that um, comes up from time to time. And I think it's just the, like the perfect word for, for, you know, an exquisite experience. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. This was, this was such an honor to spend this time with you. If you like today's show with Rebecca Kaufman, author of Chorus, check out my interview with Susan Minot, a writer that she said influenced her. We talked about Susan's novel, Why I Don't Write and Other Stories, The Illogic of Memory, and What Happens When Susan Puts Disparate Elements Together in a Story. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Keith O'Brien, No Violet Bulaweo, Jacinda Townsend, Ada Limon, and Soon Wiley. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.